patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced by non-physician practitioners. I'm Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined today by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Al-Ajba. Good evening. According to the American Psychological Association, Psychologists are trained to evaluate patients and provide psychotherapy to help people learn to cope more effectively with life issues and mental health problems. But in recent years, psychologists have sought an expansion in their scope of practice to allow them to not only perform talk therapy, but to also prescribe psychiatric medications. To help us better understand some of the differences between psychologists and psychiatrists, and to explore the possible dangers associated with prescribing rights for psychologists, we are joined today by Dr. Tori Schatzmiller-Seppa, a practicing psychiatrist, writer, and physician advocate. Dr. Seppa, welcome. Thank you for having me. Tori, can you start us off by explaining the educational path that leads to becoming a psychiatrist and tell us about your training? Sure. A psychiatrist is a physician, which means a psychiatrist has to go to medical school and undergo the pre-med requirements, the MCAT, et cetera, and go to medical school. From there, we go into a specialty, just like family practitioners do, pediatrics and internal medicine. Now, for psychiatry, it's a four-year residency. And some of us, myself included, actually did one year in family medicine as an internship and then did three full years of psychiatry residency, which is mostly inpatient in the inpatient setting, psychiatric hospitalizations, emergency rooms, and psychiatric consultations on on the hospital floors. There is an outpatient component. And this is, I think, where the fuzzy lines come in. One of the requirements for being able to qualify for the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology's oral and written examination is to have competency in the five talk therapeutic modalities, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal, psychodynamic, I can go on and on. Sorry, can I stop you for one second? Because this is something that I think I've been confused about and a lot of people. Talk to us about talk therapy and do all psychiatrists learn this and do all of them do this? And what's the difference? Good, Good question. All psychiatrists must learn this. It's one whole year to two that's worked in as part of the rest of our residency. It actually begins in year three and you can elect to continue into year four. For example, I had uh, an affinity for cognitive behavioral therapy, so I continued my training in cognitive behavioral therapy, but all psychiatrists must be trained formally in their five modalities that the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology has recognized. It's interpersonal psychodynamic psychotherapy, and then cognitive behavioral therapy, of course, and then there's something called psychodynamic psychotherapy, and then we also have a form of therapy that's a dyad or a group. We think of group therapy as being a very significant component of being able to treat substance use disorders and other illnesses. So we absolutely have to have that in every residency and the ACGME requirements for psychiatry include that. So we are competent and we spend a year on each of those. In fact, I think psychiatrists are the only or one of the few who have to be trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most evidence-based. It's very hard to find cognitive behavioral therapists 
I wish that um, in family medicine, I wish that we had more training in cognitive behavioral therapy. They're all, it's always on our test, like, what's the treatment for this? And it's like, the answer, cognitive behavioral therapy. But yet, very often, we don't even really understand what that is, much less know how to do it. Can you just explain to our listeners? Yeah. I know it's a complicated topic, but cognitive behavioral therapy. It's actually not complicated. And so I think it's really important. And so I actually have now always a third year family medicine resident who rotates with me. And one of the reasons why is because that's exactly what we want to be able to implement cognitive behavioral therapy at every appointment, no matter what kind of doctor you are, because all physicians actually employ therapeutic interventions because nobody is going to be like, take this medicine, bye, and then hope that the person takes it, right? And so cognitive behavioral therapy is essentially, first, we're going to work on identifying and learning about cognitive distortions and ways in which we all have cognitive distortions. And then we exercise on getting good at recognizing cognitive distortions. Cognitive behavioral therapy interventions are often what change behavior long-term. It's a very simple idea, but a very powerful one, which is we all have cognitive distortion. An example, I walk by a doctor in a hallway. Doctor in a hallway doesn't say hi to me. This is a doctor I know. I think to myself, he's upset at me because I didn't see his consult yet. He thinks I'm slower than the younger doctors. He thinks she can't do it because she's got a lot going on. So your mind just jumps to all of these thoughts that just come. They're like automatic thoughts, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily true, but you think them. And then they make you feel bad. And you're not, and this happens so quickly though, that you don't even know why. And then I get to my office and my MA asks me one question and I'm like, why would you question me about that? Because mm-hmm. I'm already it, it so carries out. It carries into you the rest of your life. Right. And and so we have a word for that. Type. It's mind reading. I'm mind reading. Maybe he didn't see me. I'm five feet tall. You know, Or maybe he just heard some bad news about a patient, right? So I do think it's really important. It's underutilized in psychiatry because it was initially perhaps emphasized so that we could be the team leaders. So when you when you say underutilized, do you mean kind of like the model that I see a lot, like in my community is you'll have a, a psychiatrist and then they'll have an office and they'll have like four or five psychologists that work there. And yes. maybe they do a little bit of their own psychotherapy, but mostly they do more medication management and they have their psychologists or therapists right. doing the, so is that right. what you mean by that? Exactly. And I think that psychodynamic therapy where a person is able to really provide that safe space for somebody to talk and provide insights that one otherwise may not be able to reach is incredibly important and certainly plays a role. Well, it has been for me. I mean, I went through some of my own therapy uh, and and actually with a psychiatrist and I had some epiphanies that really changed almost everything about the way I thought about things and just put me in such a better direction. And and in retrospect, it was like, well, it seems kind of dumb. Like it was just this small thing, but it was so powerful. And I really would never have come to that realization without that guidance. I will say that I also feel the same way about therapy because it's the only place where this person has no skin in the game when it comes to my life. It's a place where I feel I can be vulnerable for one and they can see things and not be afraid to tell me, which is sometimes what we need. (laughs) We were really good at compartmentalizing as physicians, but not necessarily very good at being vulnerable. And so I absolutely think 
it's critical. And I think the hardest part is finding cognitive behavioral therapists, though, who are really trained. Actually, the goal for cognitive behavioral therapy patients is that they're going to be the best cognitive behavioral therapist for themselves when it ends. So they're going to learn everything there is to learn. It's very empowering and because very empowering to keep going back and going back. Ideally, right. they're going to get those tools that That's they right. can then use for the rest of their lives. I have all the residents who work with me read a book. It's called Thoughts and Feelings. I think everybody out there might need to get a copy of this. It's book. like 11 bucks and gone through this book for 13 years with probably a thousand patients, gone through a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy books. And this one, patients say it was not difficult to read. I couldn't put it down. And I now understand why I get anxious when the phone rings and it's my mom. That's a great so recommendation. Think, so you good. mentioned about how psychiatrists are trained yes. in cognitive behavioral therapy and other types of yeah. therapy. And also, of course, they're physicians and they go to medical yes. school and do residency and learn medicine as well. Just to explain the differences, I'll just read here that, first of all, psychologist is a, a legal definition, like the term mm-hmm. nurse. And it means that the person has received a specialized training in psychology and they have a professional license. And licensed psychologists must have a doctorate. It's usually either a PhD or a PsyD. Mm-hmm. And it takes about seven years for them to earn mm-hmm. that. They also complete a one-year full-time clinical internship, and they receive at least 1,500 hours of supervised mm-hmm. practice and pass a national exam. But one of the things that I'm really interested in exploring with you is just talking about how it is that psychologists have gained prescribing rights. The first experiment with prescribing psychologists occurred in the U.S. military, and this was back in the 1980s. The Department of Defense had the idea that they wanted to increase access to psychiatric care for military personnel. And so they began a pilot project to train psychologists to prescribe certain psychiatric medications under very limited circumstances. They hand-selected 10 military psychologists, and they gave them additional training. They spent two years on an extensive didactic and clinical psychopharmacology training working closely with a physician. After this point, the psychologists were permitted to prescribe certain medications, again, under physician supervision. These psychologists were only treating a limited number of patients. They were all between the ages of 18 and 65, and these were generally healthy patients with very few coexisting medical problems. So, As you might expect, with a low-risk patient population and physician supervision, these specially trained psychologists did pretty well. They had good outcomes with their patients, and this was proclaimed to be a success. But it wasn't necessarily acknowledged that there were so many limitations when other groups took these studies and began to advocate for increased prescribing rights for psychologists outside of a military setting or outside of the limitations which would be generally healthy patients, again, under physician supervision. Tori, what are your thoughts when you hear this? And who do you think stands to benefit from prescribing rights for psychologists? Before the ACA, insurance companies decided that psychiatry, although officially a medical specialty under the American Board of Medical Specialties, would now be categorized under something called behavioral health, which is completely made up. There's no American Board of Behavioral Health. And psychiatrists would also be categorized under behavioral health along with psychologists and LCSWs and LMFTs. And as such, 
psychiatry was no longer a, a medical specialty that was a mandatory coverage. You could buy it as an add-on if your behavior didn't improve because remember it's called behavioral health now, right? So it's under your volitional control. And hey, if that if those voices don't go away, maybe it's worth buying the add-on behavioral health land like majority. I had no idea of this. In fact, I I didn't either. Yeah, I keep seeing like these signs for behavioral health and I'm like, first of all, that doesn't sound right to me because oh, it's it gets not my more, fault gets, if I have a mental illness. Oh. Like, why are you calling it behavioral? Like, as if oh, I did it. Yeah. So they called it behavioral health. There's no such thing because it's always been psychiatry. And if it's psychiatry and academic centers, then everybody falls under psychiatry. All the psychologists do, all the LCSWs do. It's because it's a medical specialty and the psychiatrists have the broadest scope, Right. So now calling it behavioral. Are you basically saying that the ACA removed psychiatry as a medical sort of specialty or something that falls within the medical treatment arm and now has been moved essentially into the behavioral health? Yes. So only exactly. So up until the ACA, these insurance plans like Blue Cross, uh, Cigna, all of them did not cover psychiatry. You had to buy it as an add-on plan. After the ACA was passed in 2013, but actually it was 2015 when it was implemented, there was something called mental health parity. So now psychiatry is a medical specialty. They still, however, the problem is now that it's not being enforced except seven states have, have passed enforcement laws. So California is not one. And I'll give you an example of what happens when you don't have enforcement and why this all applies to everything you all just said. So in the last two years, psychiatry was the number one most out of network specialty, more than dermatology and plastic surgery. It's now, it's a luxury until you end up in jail or prison. And this model was built and it created a smaller number of psychiatrists in terms of training. And the numbers are catching up. We're increasing by 132 to 35 psychiatry residents per year. And the match rate is about 98 to 99%. So we're trying, but the problem still doesn't matter how many psychiatrists you make. When only 20% of them, including myself, are paneled, you're still going to have a lack of access. So that's 80% of psychiatrists are not really available. I have to panel twice with each, each insurance plan, once as a behavioral health provider, and then again, as a medical physician. And for each of those, I have to submit differently and I'm reimbursed differently. Magellan, which is the behavioral health component, reimburses me 20% less than Medicare. And, but that keeps psychiatrists out of the model And by calling us all mental health providers, they augment this artificial panel on their website. They just say, look at all the providers we have, even if one of them is a psychiatrist. Right. So I I guess this probably has to do with why some of this legislation has been introduced to allow psychologists to prescribe medications. The the first legislation to allow this was introduced in Hawaii way back in 1985, and that first bill didn't pass, but it wasn't long before later bills did pass. And the first state to grant psychologists the right to prescribe medication was New Mexico in 2002. But since then, psychologists have prescription rights in Iowa, Idaho, Illinois, Louisiana, the Public Health Service, the Indian Health Service, and the U.S. military. 
And Louisiana happened while I was a medical student there. So I, in 2000 and I believe five, and I distinctly remember quoting this. Like I remember saying at the time it was just New Mexico and Louisiana. And I said, these two states in their legal code that cockfighting is also legal. <laughs> like why on earth is anybody following the jurisprudence of the Louisiana is the unhealthiest state in the country, you know? So, and then, and everyone, the best decisions for the citizens of Louisiana. Right. And this is what everyone told us. This is what everyone said, including the APA. This will never take off, never happen. And I drank the Kool-Aid until I found out about Illinois and I think it was Ohio. And I thought, you know what, APA, you're, you've, lo- you've lost this game. Here's the scary part. The reason psychiatry was so easy to attack is because demographic of patients are the most likely to not be able to advocate for themselves because either they're too ashamed or they lack capacity, such as they're in nursing homes or they're incarcerated. And nobody really is listening to those people. People who are incarcerated can't vote even when they come out. This is such an important point. We know that many patients of psychiatrists are extremely vulnerable, and we know that they also take medications that can be really high risk. The American Medical Association sent a letter to the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services back in April of 2017 when they were considering allowing psychologists to prescribe medication, and they noted that more than half of the 30 most commonly prescribed psychiatric medications carry what they call black box warnings from the Food and Drug Administration. Black box warnings mean that these drugs have a risk of causing serious and deadly side effects, including strokes, heart attacks, and birth defects among pregnant women. And what's further interesting is that some of these prescribing psychologists are not just sticking to psychiatric medications. In fact, prescriptions claims data in Louisiana and New Mexico has shown that psychologists are prescribing medications outside of those used for psychiatric illness, including warfarin, which is a powerful and potentially dangerous blood thinner. It's usually used for people with atrial fibrillation or blood clots. Also blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications, and muscle relaxers. And all of these would be considered outside of the scope of someone that is that is licensed to prescribe medications for psychiatric conditions. The question really becomes who stands to benefit from increased prescribing rights for psychologists. And we're going to discuss that in part two of our series on prescribing psychologists with Dr. Tori Schatzmiller-Seppa. So please join us for our next podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and also check us out on our YouTube site, Patients at Risk. For more information, please get our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It is available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And we also encourage you, if you're a physician and you're interested in advocating for physician-led care and learning more about what we're doing, we encourage you to join us at physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.